There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 351. And today in the show, I'm joined by outdoor writer and author Bill Heavey for a rambling exploration of the relevance of hunting fishing and foraging in the year 2020 and beyond all right hello and welcome to the wired to hunt podcast brought to you by onyx i hope you guys are doing well and staying safe and sane and busy today we have got an interesting conversation for you something a little bit different than usual and that i hope you're going to enjoy as i'm speaking with bill Heavey. Now, most of you are probably familiar with Bill from his long-running back page column, back page column, <laughs> is what I'm trying to say, over at Field and Stream. It's called A Sportsman's Life. Uh, these are these funny end-of-the-issue stories and anecdotes that Bill has just mastered. It always brings a smile to your face. He's also the author of several great books, including one titled It's Only Slow Food Until You Try to Eat It which is one that I just recently read and which inspired me to give Bill a call. Bill is a, is a funny, insightful, and brutally honest writer. And if you've heard episode number 213 of this podcast, which Bill was a guest on, you know he's also a really interesting guy to chat with. So for that reason, it seemed that you know, given everything that's going on right now, Bill would be a good person to speak with. Given the current events, it seems like hunting and fishing and, and foraging too, these different ways of living and eating close to the land, it might have a new sense of relevance for people. And it's this set of topics that I wanted to pick Bill's brain about. So we discuss how the outdoors has helped him cope with the stress of our current times. We chat about the future of hunting, parenting children to appreciate the outdoors, foraging for wild edibles, uh, the risks of eating goose eggs, and just a whole lot more. It's a wide-ranging and at times random conversation, and in short, it was, it was just what I needed. So without further ado, here's my chat with the one and only Bill Heavey. All right, with me now on the line for the second time is Bill Heavey. Bill, thanks for coming back on the show. You bet. 
I uh, I really enjoyed our last chat, and it seems, for whatever reason, the last month and a half or so, I've found myself drawn to certain types of people or writers. Um, maybe I'm I'm seeking comfort in some kind of something. I don't exactly know how to put words to it, but but you are someone who I've been drawn to, at least your words. Um, I, you know, we chatted a couple of years ago on the podcast and I told you that I read a lot of your books, but there's one of your books that I hadn't read. And that was, it's only slow food until you try to eat it. And yeah. so I decided to, to, to actually read that one now. So I've been reading that one during this uh, current event crisis of sorts that we're in with the coronavirus, uh, obviously sucking all the oxygen out of the room here in spring of 2020. And it got me thinking that, that you would be a great person to talk to. So, so that's, that's why I'm really excited about this bill. How, how have you been holding up out there on the East coast? Um, you know, I think about like everybody else, um, you know, the drama is kind of, there was some drama to the, all this, you know, in the first few weeks, uh, you know, it was new and it was, oh, you know, this complete break, with the past and, and the kind of life that I'd been living and I assume most people have been living, uh, all of a sudden got changed completely. And now, you know, if this were a story that I was handing into an editor, it would come back with the remark, um, uh, you know, there's no dramatic arc here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 there's, a, there's a very unsatisfying, you know, kind of stasis right now where we're all just hanging out in it, waiting for, you know, things to get better or things to get worse or whatever, you know, whatever's going to happen next. So we can kind of keep moving. And, you know, there's a sense of being kind of, you know, stuck, frozen uh, in place, waiting, you know, waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, I feel very similarly. Like we're in this this new slow tailing out of trying to figure out what the new normal is or what's the next. What I guess we don't know what normal is going to look like, but everyone's trying to sort of figure that out right now. To to the frustration of many, I guess there's a whole lot of angst. Uh, just just yesterday in my home state here in Michigan. A bunch of protesters stormed our capital, uh, and we're seeing that all over the country. So there's there's the health crisis, there's the concerns, there's the concerns around the economy, and it's it's uncertain times, that's for sure. What what have you what have you what have you been doing during this time of lockdown and quarantine? I got to believe it's it's got to be particularly particularly. Uh, particularly something where you're at right there near Washington, DC. I wish it was particularly something. I'm not sure it is. Um, <laughs> What's lockdown like in DC area? Uh, you know, I'm not sure I can even speak to DC area. I can speak for, for me because, you know, DC area is like any other area is, you know, composed of a million people who are all in lockdown and whose worlds shrink to, you know, the one, two, three, you know, however many people we're, we're seeing. Um, so, you know, I've been taking a lot of walks. I can't go to the gym anymore, which is, which is a great loss for me. Cause that's one of the ways I kind of get outside my head was to just go to the gym and, you know, even if it was getting on a treadmill, um, you know, it, it helped me a lot. So I've been taking a lot of walks. 
I go to the Potomac River and walk, and I've been walking on the towpath. But there, you know, there are more and more people going to those places to walk, and um, you know, sometimes some people get it, some people don't. You know, the other the other day I was out on the towpath, and this family is walking towards me, and they're walking four abreast. And you know, there's for me to get six feet, I would have to you know jump in the canal, right. <laughs> and I. I said, uh, folks, you know, uh, this is this is really not cool. The social distancing, and they looked at me like I lost my mind. Um, so some people are, some people's heads are in one place, and other people's heads are in another. Yeah, it it's, it strikes me during this period. Um, when it comes to the outdoor activities, when it comes to hunting or fishing or just taking walks, I've been wondering to myself, do those types of things that we take for granted, that we love, that are part of our life, going fishing, going turkey hunting, whatever, do those things matter less right now, given the scope of what's happening around us? Should they matter less or or the opposite? Do they do they matter more than ever? Do they matter more? That's That's what I'm wondering in your perspective. Much more than ever, um, because you know there are outlets to, you know, to help you cope with things, and uh, so for me they certainly matter more, more than ever. And it, you know, it's it's actually a great comfort uh, to see that the natural world, you know, couldn't care less about this. You know, yeah. everything's blooming. Uh, you know, flowers are coming up, trees are budding. Um, the fish are running, um, you know, that, and I find it really comforting that the natural world, you know, just boogies on and, um, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't really give a damn what we do. Yeah. That is, that is, uh, reassuring in, in some small way. I've always found that to be something I have always appreciated about my outdoor experiences is that they, they can humble you so much when you realize how small you are in the bigger scheme of things when you go out into a wilderness and you yeah. can so tangibly feel how small you are that some people yeah. for some people that's disconcerting or that is upsetting to them but to me it's it's kind of the opposite yeah i find it i find it really nourishing somehow uh to be reminded that that you know uh i could drop dead tonight and you know the sun's going to come up tomorrow and the birds are going to sing and you know the world goes on and uh, I don't. It's hard to. It's hard to explain the comfort in that, but I, I certainly experience it. Yeah, and it's funny you mention that though. When you say that you could drop dead tomorrow and everything would go on, um, I was reading in a recent story of yours uh, from Field and Stream, where you. Well, I'll just I'll just quote what you said here because it's, it's it's related to something I think a lot of people are probably thinking about right now, which is taking inventory of your life. This whole set of circumstances, I think, has made a lot of us press pause and think about things. And so you wrote in this story, I'll quote you, you said, I read a news story the other day that asked if, say, my lungs were to fill with fluid a week from now, would I be content with the life I've led? My response was an emphatic, not really. Then, as the writer intended, I began to worry. End quote. And uh, tell me this, Bill. What, what, what are you worried about? What, what would you, 
want to have done or still do when it comes to, obviously I don't want to pry into personal things, but when it comes to hunting or fishing or the outdoors or anything like that, what, what else do you still want to get done? Oh, you know, it's strange. I don't think of it in terms of accomplishing a list. Uh, you know, I know there are guys who have these dream uh, trips. You know, they want to go to Alaska for caribou. They want to they go elk hunting someplace. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. My, my individual head doesn't, doesn't really work that way. Um, you know, tomorrow I'm going out uh, rock fishing on the Chesapeake Bay, and I'm really looking forward to it. Um, and I just got the invitation today, so it was it was wonderful. So 5.30 tomorrow morning, I'm going to be, um, you know, 70 miles from here, getting on a, on a boat, and, and that's going to be awesome. Uh, you know, the invitation came, and I didn't think twice. I was just like, you know, yeah, I'm there. Um, so it, uh, I'm not quite sure how to answer your question because my, uh, yeah, I think, I think I probably misworded my question. I, I, I don't think that I necessarily, uh, there's nothing wrong with not having a bucket list. I don't think that's something that, um, we have to get to at all, but is there, I guess what, what, what do you, what, what are you looking forward to? What are the things you still hope to experience? Um, I, I'll just lay an example out for you. One of the things I thought about um, as I was just kind of writing some notes and I was thinking to myself, what what are the things I would miss out on if, say, something like that were to happen? And right now it's, gosh, I want to see, uh, I want to see my son get his first turkey. Uh, when It's funny, when we talked yeah. last time, Bill, when we talked, it was... It was almost exactly two two years ago because I went and re-listened to that conversation. And during that conversation, I told you that I had a three-month-old son. And now we're speaking again. And I have another three-month-old son, which is interesting. But I also have a two-year-old. <laughs> so my son that was three months is now two years old. And, uh, and so the joy of my lockdown period, the thing that's been keeping me excited during this time stuck at home is that I've been able to go in our backyard with my two-year-old and go chase turkeys. He absolutely loves turkeys. He plays with the slate call. He's so excited about it. Um, and that's just been such a, a sense of, or such a, such a, just a way to kind of get away from everything and see that joy. So when I think about these next outdoor experiences or anything to do with the natural world, a lot of it has to do with my kids now. Um, yeah, I'm just kind of curious where your head's at. <laughs> yeah. My head's listening to you thinking, I want to borrow that kid. <laughs> um, I, I want to have, <laughs> I want to have somebody to chase, chase turkeys with who gets excited. Yeah. My, uh, funny. my daughter, uh, is, has just taken hunter safety and wants to go hunting with me this fall. Wow. And that is about the most exciting thing going on, on the hunting and fishing horizon for me because, uh, this is a kid who was brought up here, you know, inside the Beltway, and um, you know, her school and her mom um, were were very, you know, anti-gun because they had no experience with guns, and they can't, you know, there are there are a lot of people out there who think, well, why would you own a gun if you didn't want to shoot people? 
Um, and now she's gone to, uh, she's working on a ranch in Texas and she's meeting all these, these boys and, and shooting guns and, you know, seeing a different way of, of life and, uh, and, you know, taking to it. So she bought herself a pickup truck and, uh, took, took hunter safety. So that's, you know, that's great. Wow. I think anybody with kids, you know, there's no greater joy than putting your child um, onto his first or her first, you know, fish or whatever it is. Yeah. I was in your book, I was reading a bit where you had been uh, foraging. And I can't remember what exactly it was you'd found, but you had tried to feed whatever this was to your daughter. And she said something along the lines of, no, I'm not going to eat that. I don't like nature food. <laughs> Is that, <laughs> has she grown from that too? Uh, I, I don't, I, you know, I hope so. Uh, maybe a little bit. Um, it's, it's really a funny line when you think about it. I don't like nature food. You know, I like food that comes from, I like food that comes from someplace else, like the, you know, the grocery store, which has nothing to do with nature. Um, you know, you go, if you're brought up in certain places, you just think food comes from the store and you never, the idea that somebody grows it and ships it, uh, you know, never crosses your mind. Right. It's funny though, right now, I think probably in a more stark way than ever before, people are starting to realize that, oh, the grocery store isn't always going to have what I need. For the first time, they're going there and there's not the meat I want or there's not the produce I want. Um, I, it's it's strange how the ripple effects of this set of circumstances are, are drifting out away from the core issue. I, I've just been getting this sense from social media and conversations and, and I'm making some assumptions too, but I think there's this this new interest in, in self-reliance or uh, living closer to the land. Do you, are you sensing that? Do you think that this is going to have that kind of effect? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sensing the same thing you are that, um, you know, I just, I, I kind of, there's a part of me that just loves the idea that you can't get everything you want at the grocery store anymore <laughs> and that it's really shaking people up and, and making them examine, you know, how they eat and what they eat and where it comes from and why and the whole thing, you know, it's this, this crisis, you know, one of the things it's done is jog us out all out of our complacency about a lot of different things. And one of them is, you know, the natural world. Um, so I think it's, you know, there are more people growing gardens. Um, and, and I just think, oh, that's great. Do you see that change at all in you? Are you re-examining what you're doing or try, wanting to dive in even further? I mean, maybe I should. This is a two-part question. That's part B. Part A is: uh, Have you continued on with the journey that you started in that book, where you spoke to this this desire to try to forage for more food, fish for more, more food, hunt for more food? Um, supply more and more of your diet with your own, um, you know, with your own hands. Has that changed over the subsequent, you know, seven, eight years since you wrote that book? And then how has this changed things even further? If so? Um, I think it's kind of deepened, you know, I, it's not that I do more of it, but I, uh, 
I really value the the times when I'm when I can do that. I've been going crazy the past few weeks uh, looking for morels, and and occasionally, you know, I had one day when I got about forty five or fifty morels, and it was nice. It was just an amazing day. I'm, I was fishing with, I mean, I was hunting for morels with a young guy uh, I met at Fletcher's, who's a, a fisheries biologist. And we're out, and, and, you know, very skilled fishermen. And we're out and finding morels. And he was finding twice as many as I was for whatever reason. <laughs> he said, This is amazing. You know, this is, don't tell anyone. This, I like, finding a morel more than I do catching a fish. <laughs> um, so I, I assured him that I would keep that private. And now I'm, now I'm telling you, Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, those kinds of things are just, they're just so cool. It's so satisfying. So I've brought, you know, morels home and made uh, pasta sauce with them and, you know, put them in dishes and stuff. And it's, it's wonderful. I want to go out again. I'm actually planning on doing that, uh, tomorrow and Sunday with my, with my family. We're going to do some morel hunting this weekend. Really? So pretty excited about that. You got morels up there? We do. We do. I've, I, I'm ashamed to admit that I've never taken them very seriously and not spent the time looking for them. But mm-hmm. over the last year I've decided I need to change that. So, uh, yes, I think we finally have the weather and from what I hear, they should be starting to show up right now. So we're going to be hitting it hard. Yeah, they can, uh, you can get really hooked. Can you, can you give us a, a pro tip? I, uh, as you mentioned, I've, you've been finding a bunch lately. Any, any things that it's, it's weird. I've been, I've been going to places that people have told me about or have found them. And it is just so spooky, uh, where they are and where they aren't. You know, I've gone to places and walked the whole day and not found a single morel. And I've gone to places where, you know, I probably didn't walk, you know, 400 yards all day and found tons of morels. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm light on pro tips. <laughs> That's okay. Except that it's fun to look. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny. Sometimes whether it's, looking for mushrooms or shed hunting or probably any other kind of foraging. You need to just enjoy the act of searching. If you don't enjoy the act of searching, if you're just focused on the end result, you're probably going to be disappointed most of the time. It's, it's totally like shed hunting. And, you know, if you need to find a shed to have a good day shed hunting, you know, you probably shouldn't go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and actually one of the things I like about morels is that, uh, they're easier to find than sheds. You think so? <laughs> for me, they've been, What's, if I found as many sheds as I found morels, I would be, I would be, a very happy camper. Yeah, I guess you don't ever find uh, fifteen sheds all clustered together under one tree, huh? <laughs> no, they don't. I wish though. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? If, like <laughs> here, you know, deer decided to cooperate and like I'm going to go shed over here. Yeah, you know, these guys are looking for it. That would be that would be pretty great. Um, so you're looking for mushrooms. Is there anything else that you still forage because? I was just reading the other night about how you had tried to forage from your lawn and put together a salad from all the various weeds and greens in your yard. And I'd read about cattails you were eating. Uh, has any of that carried over? Do you forage for anything else? Um, every once in a while, you know, in, 
when the dandelions first started coming up, I would get um, dandelion leaves and saute them. And I, I like them for breakfast with eggs. Um, so that, that was really good. How do you, how do you do that? Just which parts are you using? Well, you're using the leaves and what you want are what's known as the basil rosette. So you go to the center of the, of the plant and what you really want are the young, uh, small tender leaves that grow in the center. And as you go out from that, they get, um, tougher and more bitter. And by this, you know, by the time the plants have been up for a while, they, they get, um, real bitter, which is, you know, this is nature's way of protecting the plant. Um, you know, to put stuff in it that makes it so that certain animals don't, you know, don't eat as much of them. Right. I, uh, I, I've been, been looking into more and more of, of this whole foraging idea and it, it does seem a little intimidating, even mushrooms. It seems like if you eat the wrong one, it could kill you. Um, but I, yeah. As I've been looking to it, it seems to be there's some staples. For example, a friend of mine uh, on a recent podcast talked about the foolproof four mushrooms. That you know, there's these four that are safe. They're easy to find. They're great. Um, mm-hmm. If if I was going to pick up foraging other things, greens or something like that, is there a foolproof four of uh, of anything else out in nature that I could be adding to my diet? Or if I'm locked down because of coronavirus and I need to spice up the uh, the refrigerator is there is there a handful of things you've learned about yeah well let's see you're putting me on the spot here um it's my job <laughs> you know i love to go out and get you know wine berries which are uh, kind of um they're like wild uh, raspberries um and those grow pretty well around here you know most places there are berries that get ripe um in you know a few weeks or a month or more from now um i love going out for uh pawpaws in the fall it's usually in um, mid-september and they tend to grow along rivers they're all over the east but not uh not exclusively and then you know from canada to louisiana and you know those are wonderful it's the biggest um it's the biggest new world fruit and it, it has this amazingly tropical taste. You know, the first time you eat one, you can't really believe that it grows, you know, around. I, the first one time I had one, I couldn't believe it was a local fruit because it just tasted so so much like, you know, mango and banana. Huh. And I love those. But, you know, with a lot of forage things, you know, the you know, people who have all these recipes for papa and i've always thought the best way to eat them is just you know where right under the tree where you find you know just take a pocket knife peel the skin off and just enjoy it it's almost um it's more it's almost like a sacrament of fall you know it's just a reminder that this is a once a year thing and that the seasons are rolling and um, at this moment and the pawpaws are ripe, has come around again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've always thought the best spice is the scene. Like if you 
there's so many meals that you can look back on and say, oh, that was the best meal I could ever imagine. And you think about the food itself and it probably wasn't, you know, tangibly that much better than something you ate at home or at a restaurant, but it was because you were on that mountain or it was because you were, you know, by that tree or by that river. Um, Those meals just seem to be saturated with something different. Yeah, it's totally about those associations. I was once writing a piece about a a family of African-Americans who gathered from all over the country in Texas um, for a barbecue every summer. And they, um, you know, they were all dispersed widely, but they'd grown up here. And the the guys were taking me to this uh, barbecue place that had these sausages, which they loved. And they just hyped these sausages up, you know, for hours before I had one. And they were, they were awful. (laughs) (laughs) But these guys loved them. And I realized what they're tasting. They're not really tasting the sausages. They're tasting their, their use again. Yeah. And that, you know, that made them wonderful. Do you have anything like that in your life? A a meal or a food or something that you have associated with some past memory or a place or something that if you took me to eat it, I probably wouldn't be too impressed. Um, well, you know, I was a suburbs kid, so it would be, you know, McDonald's or something. <laughs> well, okay, you're right. I wouldn't be impressed. <laughs> yeah, you would. I'm, I'm, I'm not impressed. Uh, so I, I wish I had some magical, you know, touchstone food I could tell you about and gush about, but uh, but I don't. I think I think as I try to answer my own question, as I just uh, popped in my mind, and I I thought back to. Well, I grew up in a in a family that that hunted and fished, but it was a very there's a lot of enthusiasm. There's very little expertise. I guess might be a way to put it. We kind of just follow the very traditional, very traditional Michigan. You head out, you sit next to a tree and shoot the first thing you see. We had a little cabin up north, um, so great tradition. Um, yeah, but. But when it came to, for example, cooking, same thing, no expertise. The only way I ate venison growing up was uh, we would, my, my dad or grandpa would cut up pieces of venison into medallions, put it in a pan, put in sliced onions, pour a whole thing of barbecue sauce into the pan, and then you fried it up. And you fried it till those things were like hockey pucks. And and that is what we ate. And I thought it was the best meal in the world. It was so good. But now looking back on it, it must have been terrible picking all those chunks of meat out of my teeth for weeks on end afterwards because I'm sure it was horribly overcooked. Um, but, but, you know, aside from that, it sounds pretty damn good. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was the best. If you just don't overcook it, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good meal. I was making barbecue last night from a, from a, you know, a dough, dough shoulder that I had in the fridge. Um, and it was good. What's uh, what what are your go to? What are your go to uh, comfort meals or comfort food recipes for your venison these days? I don't know if 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 you're feeling this, but I feel like right now comfort food things that just make me feel good are high on my list of the types of food I want to eat right now. Um, what would your go to be right now? You, you know, I like making barbecue and and. Uh, as it, as it happens, it turns out to be a plug for you because the, the recipe I found was on meat eater hey, for, um, for, uh, and I can't remember what it was called. So I don't know how to direct people to it, but it was cooking, uh, venison with, um, you know, you made, uh, sauce with, uh, onions 
you know, onions and vinegar were, so, uh, you know, the primary ingredients in it. And you cook it down and you put it in a crock pot on low and, you know, come back the next day almost. But it's great. Yeah, hard to go wrong with that. Yeah. Um, we I did something kind of similar except for I did low and slow in a smoker and made like a, almost like a barbecue brisket type of chopped brisket sandwich. Um with a venison roast and wow, that was, that was tremendous too. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when it comes to, to food, I had another story I wanted to pry out of you, Bill, that kind of looks at the opposite side of the food spectrum, which would be the appalling. And I, I absolutely loved the story you shared in your book about foraging for goose eggs. Oh yeah. Can you, can you regale us with the story of your blue goose story? Uh, I, I just would love to hear that again. Uh, best I can remember, I was out. Uh, I had a couple of foraging teachers, and one was uh, my friend Paula Smith, who I've written about extensively. And we were out looking for goose eggs along the Potomac. And she was explaining that, you know, in high water, you know, the you know, goose are not the goose are not the brightest creatures. You know, they 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 nest right at the at the edge of the water, and sometimes the water comes up and washes their wet eggs away. So they, you know, they there's a second lay, and um, so she we're you know we're we're kind of bushwhacking through this tall grass and seeing geese, and uh, we saw one that put its head down. You know, it wasn't running away, and she goes, Ah, oh, that's one on the nest. Okay, we can get these. She goes, you know, I wouldn't, well, you know, I wouldn't take these, but they're, we're overrun in geese. You know, I wouldn't take a duck's eggs. Um, so we went and we got these two eggs and they were big, you know, um, more than twice the size of a regular egg. And uh, she said, no, these will be good. So I took mine home and... Uh, what did I do? I think I boiled it or soft boiled it and I opened it up and it was, uh, the fetus of the, <laughs> of the goose blue and a little too fully formed Ugh. for my taste to eat it. And, and I, I kind of flipped out and I just, I washed it down the, I washed it down the disposal and turned on the disposal and just tried to make it, you know, like this didn't really happen. <laughs> make it disappear. Because I, felt, Cause I felt so bad about it. So it was like, this thing was never really here. <laughs> um, and later I called Paula and I said, did you have the same experience I did? She goes, yeah, boy, I wasn't crazy about eating that, but I ate it. <laughs> she, she, goes, she goes, yeah, I took it. I had to eat it. And, you know, <laughs> Oh man. I, I felt kind of ashamed that I was not as noble as Paula was. Yeah, I think I think you wrote that she hard boiled it and then sliced it up thin or something. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Oh. You know, but. It's funny though, you in in that uh I'm recalling now what you just said is that when she told you that, you know, well I killed it, I had to eat it, you were impressed by that by that set of principles she had around it. Around yeah. the hunt or the you know, the kill. Um, do you, do you feel like you have 
something similar now, or have you have you changed at all since those early days? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I maybe this is what happens as you get old. I, I feel even more um, a duty to make use of any animal I've killed. You know, you're taking the life of this animal, which is, you know, it's a momentous thing. It's, you know, you, you're, you know, it's a godlike power, life and death. And if you kill something, um, you know, and you don't use it, that seems to me just indefensible. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's one of those things that uh, for me and probably for a lot of people, especially I guess those who start as children, as, as, as a young person, I was just indoctrinated into it. You, this is what you do. You hunt, you, you kill animals, you eat them. That was just part of life. It wasn't until I think I got into my 20s that I started to self-examine. Like, why do I do this? Or, or how do I do this? And, and does it matter how I do this? Um, I, I didn't come to my own set of, of ethics or principles until that point. But before, it was, it was the thing you did. Um, I wonder what if you, what did you discover in your own ethics? Well, I think I discovered pretty quickly that I had to set some kind of. I had to create that ethic for myself. There was there was what was given to me by my family. You do this, you do this, you do this. But I never really got into the why, um, except for I was I what there was always a sense of respect. You had to respect the animal. You definitely had to use the animal. There was there was always. My grandpa was always very serious that you would you would never shoot anything unless you were going to kill it right away, quick clean kill, and you were going to use it. There was no shooting at something just because. Um, you know, he didn't like me shooting at a raccoon in the woods just because. Um, so that was given to me, but I had to then later process it in my twenties and then figure that out and 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 figure like what what does that mean for me as an adult and how does that influence the decisions I make, what I'm going to hunt why I'm going to hunt all of that. And, uh, you know, that's, that was 13 years ago or whatever. I'm still figuring it out today. It's evolving. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER.
O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. You came into hunting as an adult, as I understand it. Yeah. Um, but you've been doing it for, for quite a long time now. How is your set of principles or your set of in internal guidelines, how has that evolved? How I, I know you still have them. You obviously do. They're deeper, you said. But but how, what what's changed? Has anything changed? You know, get, I don't know how to put this exactly. As you get older, your your heart gets softer. You know, it's harder. It's harder to kill things. Um, and I've sometimes you know gone out thinking I'm going meat hunting and I had a shot at a at a, a deer and just not taking it just something something in me wasn't ready to to you know let that arrow go um and i don't think that's an uncommon uh, experience uh among older hunters you know uh you realize you're not going to be around forever (laughs) yeah and you see something i don't know maybe i see something of myself in these animals i don't know my my grandpa, in his later years, he started just taking a video camera, and and that was all he would shoot his animals with. And I always thought, I thought he was crazy. I would get mad at him. Why didn't you shoot that buck? Uh, but I, 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 I <laughs> why aren't you killing stuff? <laughs> yeah, I think I I get it a little bit more now though. I can see where he was coming from. I could see you know someday maybe I'll find myself in a similar place. I'm not. I'm not there yet. I'm not. I'm not at the video camera stage yet. Um, but you know, I get it. As I as I uh, as I understand it, you still you still get pretty excited about the shot. I, I I saw a recent article about target panic. You still you still get the fever, huh? Yeah. Well, target panic's completely different than than the hunting uh, the hunting shakes. But uh, yeah, it's it's funny. I and it's. I cannot even be thinking about getting excited about a deer. You know, maybe I've been out hunting a couple of days and I haven't seen one and a deer, you know, walks within range and uh, my legs just start shaking. It's not even, uh, it has nothing to do with my brain whatsoever. How are you dealing with that? Well, you hope the deer's long. <laughs> I hope the deer is going to be around long enough for me to, to get some control of that. But, you know, I also love that I still have that reaction. You know, it tells me I'm alive. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a great that, that you can be that moved 
by an animal, uh, I think is something to be thankful for, you know? Yeah. Very true. It's funny that kind of, that kind of experience is, is so relatively unique to something like hunting. I think that's one of the things that draws so many of us to it and keeps us so hooked on it. Um, but then you see, you know, so many other folks across the country or the world are pulled in these other directions with, you know, the video games, TV shows, whatever it is. There's so many different distractions out there, these different things that can fill your time. Um, but then you yeah. see something like hunting and you and I know like, oh, there's you're missing out. There's this there's something so special that you're missing out on while you're filling your head full of Netflix. Do you? I, I can't. I can't believe there's a video game that makes anybody's legs shake. Right. <laughs> so, so with that being the case, do you? Do you ever worry that hunting is becoming irrelevant to people? Is hunting relevant today? How do you feel about that? I, I certainly have my thoughts, but I mean, I it's it's very relevant to me, and I I think there will always be people to whom it speaks. Um. You know, I don't think hunting will ever go away. You know, we're 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 hardwired for it. You know, our species hunted for ninety ninety nine percent of our time on this planet. We we lived and died by our skills as hunters, and I think we're that's just we're hardwired for that. But it's true that if you don't get exposed to it, you never know. You know, you never know that. The first time I killed a deer um, was with a bow and arrow. And the, as soon as I'd done it, this, I was just flooded by all these chemicals and emotions. And I had this really distinct sense that I, you know, what I was feeling was not unique to me. It was um, an ancestral memory, you know, a kind of circuitry that's latent in all of us, but you don't know that until you activate it. And otherwise it's just, you're not even aware it's there. Do you, I a hundred percent can relate to that. And I wonder, have you thought at all about or worried or hoped at all about your daughter's experience with that possibly coming up if she's able to follow through and, and, and go on a hunt? I would. Yeah. I mean, I, I fervently hope that she will have the same experience. And at the same time, I realize that I have um, about no control over that, you know, that she's going to, she's going to experience what she experiences. And uh, as as a parent, you know, you, (laughs) you would love to be able to shape that. Um, But that's part of, you know, parent is, you know, just coping with the fact that you know that you can't. And, you know, letting go. Are you going to, is she going to go on her first hunt with you or is she going to get to do that in Texas? I think, I think she's going to, I think she's going to wait and go with me. That's exciting. Is that exciting or nerve wracking? Uh, both. As you, as you might imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so I know you said you can't control it, but who's, let's not kid ourselves. I'm sure you are going to try to at least plan and or influence it as best as you possibly can. Uh, how do you, I don't know, do you have something envisioned already? Do you have some kind of idea? I think the most 
powerful thing you can do is just talk. You know, the most powerful thing I can do is just tell her what, what it's been like for me and what it means to me. Um, and, you know, turn her loose and see what her experiences and, you know, hope, you know, I think kids are always listening more than we give them credit for. Um, even when they're telling you, you know, they don't need you and mind your own business and let me live my life. Um, and pushing you away just as hard as they can. Uh, they still need you and they're still listening. It, uh, it's just, you're doing a really convincing job of making you think they are. <laughs> yeah, that's, you'll get to this. Your kids are young. <laughs> yeah. I can already feel like I can see the very beginnings of it though. <laughs> yeah. It is a, it is an interesting journey. That's, that's for certain. And it's, it's funny. I find myself looking forward to things like you're describing, you know, I can't wait till I can take him out on, on a real hunt until he can get hunter safety and, and all these things. But then I, I try to remind myself not to wish away today. I do try to just appreciate and enjoy the little things right now. Um, but man, I remember taking, I took Emma once fishing once and, uh, I had brought, you know, a little rod for her, you know, and set it up and, you know, did all this stuff so she would enjoy fishing. And she cast, you know, three times and said, you know, I'm bored. I'm going to, I'm going to go over here. And I said, well, just, okay, let me fish for a little bit. And when I came over, she had made about eight or 10 little altars. She just had gathered grasses and rocks and sticks and stuff. And she just made these amazing little altars, some, you know, little shrines or something um, in the rocks. And, and, you know, they were, it was kind of mind blowing because she was having her own experience and response, I think, to the river and to being out there. And it wasn't about fishing, but it was, you know, it was primal. One of the things that I've, it's funny as you mentioned that I've, as I've been starting to have these experiences with my son, I find myself being conflicted with like these two sides of what I want to have happen. I want my son to have, yeah, like, for example, I want to go out, we're going on a hike. I want to go somewhere. I want to cover distance. I want to get to whatever end destination is. So there's that. But then there's the flip side, which is I also want him to ha enjoy his own experience, like you described, this other thing, whatever it's going to be for him. So I'm constantly struggling with like my frustration that we're not covering any distance because he wants to look at every dandelion or he wants to pick up every stick. But at the same time, I have to remind myself this is so great that he's excited about these things and that he's having fun. So it's it's I'm definitely in this new phase where I have to rewire how I get satisfaction out of things. Yeah. Um, I, I went through I went through a lot of that where I would get annoyed at my child because she was not moving at what I was sure was the right pace and the stuff that she was interested in was not the stuff that she should really be interested in and it was you know that you know you're dawdling while, while you know while I have something to show you and it's up here right. and and I you know now that I'm older I regret you know keenly that I didn't just let her go and try to help her discover as she was discovering. And, you know, maybe that's one of those things you only really appreciate 
in hindsight. But, uh, you know, I'd love if I could go back and change some of the ways I, I acted. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, though, on the flip side of that. I, I, I totally, I, I can see myself wanting to be doing what you just described. I want to try to be as, as patient and understanding and focusing on the enjoyment for them. That, of course, makes a lot of sense. But I've got a friend who brought another point up, which I think about sometimes. I'm not there yet with my kids. They're too young, I think. But at some point, I wonder if I want to introduce this element. And um, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, so previous or listeners know what I'm getting at here. But this friend of mine had said that um, the outdoors is really good at teaching your kids to become comfortable with the uncomfortable and using it as this tool like – we should, we should, I don't want to say force, but it, it's okay to put them in uncomfortable, difficult situations and push them past the easy enjoyment because that's a growth opportunity. It's important that they learn to deal with being cold, not just to be dealing with being cold, but what that kind of does for someone building that little yeah. inner toughness. Um, and so I, I think about that a lot and how I might try to walk that fine line someday. Um, have you had any experience with that or thoughts on on these outdoor experiences as personal growth tool for our children as well? Um, you know, I don't really. Um, I think they're going to get they're going to get what they get, and I agree with you that those experiences are are great. And if you know, if the kid is uh, enthused and engaged in what they're doing, they won't mind being a little cold or a little uncomfortable. I, I never had any luck trying to, you know, <laughs> trying to convince a child that uh, it was okay that she was cold. <laughs> That's a losing battle, huh? And it was just a little discomfort. And, you know, if you stick it out this, this evening when you're home, you know, you'll be glad that you did. Yeah. Uh, I, I never got real far with that. So far, my uh, method has been snacks. I've been able to extend our outdoor activities with snacks. <laughs> yeah, oh, snacks are key. Yes, uh, I, I have been lucky though. I I don't know what I did right or just lucked into it. That uh, so far, my son is gung ho. He's he wants to go out and chase turkeys, even in the pouring rain. He wanted to stay out in the woods, and he just sat on my lap and ate his Nutrigrain bar and. Every time we heard a turkey gobble, his eyes got big, and he'd say, turkey! Wow. And, uh, That's wonderful. So it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. The only problem is that he tries to bring that inside with him. So when our three-month-old is taking a nap, which are so, so, so blessed and sacred right now, he needs those naps. We need that little baby sleeping. And then my two-year-old grabs his box call and wants to start cutting away on that. Um, then we have an issue. <laughs> I bet you do. So that's that's our current struggle right now. Be, be careful what you create. Uh, I know it. I know. We joke that um, he's going to go into preschool or kindergarten or whatever, and that poor teacher is going to start walking through during class the various animal noises maybe. At some point, they'll bring up, well, you know, a turkey says this, uh, a bear says this, and I can see my son being very bossy and correcting everyone. Well, no, a turkey, actually a female turkey will yelp like this, and an elk <laughs> bugles like this because he's already bugling on the bugling tube, and he's, uh, I don't know, he's into it. So, 
That'd be great. That'd be great. That'd be a wonderful story to tell uh, uh, you know, when he gets married or something. It will be. Yeah, it will be. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. I'm in this point now with my hunting and fishing where, you know, as a kid I was just into it, and then as a teenager I was trying to get good at it, trying to figure it out, just the basics, like how do I get, how do I kill a deer, how do I catch fish? And then in my 20s, it was, how do I catch a bunch of fish and how do I get good at deer hunting and, you know, kill a big buck or an old buck or something like that. And so I've been, that's been my trajectory. Now I'm in my 30s and I've got a young family and um, now I'm finding myself more and more thinking about, okay, how do I, how do I foster and create a lifestyle for my family that is centered in these outdoor places and wildlife and these things that matter to us and how do I introduce my children to that so that's where I am in in my kind of outdoor journey where 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 are you bill what are the things that are mattering to you now and in the future um well I you know I, I referred to this before but you know there's nothing more satisfying than than putting a kid you know on his first fish or helping a kid um, enjoy the outdoors, you know, that, that becomes much more fulfilling than, um, you know, anything I could catch or kill. Um, and other than that, it's just, you know, it's the experience of, I just, I really value the experience of being out there, just being part of the, of the cycle, being, you know, 
being a witness to it, getting to see the year just going on the way seasons have always always gone and always will if we don't screw things up too much. <laughs> yeah. Do do you have anything coming up that uh, that you're particularly looking forward to? If if assuming we can do the things we're hoping we can do in the coming months, um, anything that you're particularly uh, pointing your pointing your mind towards? Um, well, I'm very excited to be going rock fishing tomorrow. Um, I'm going to get out and start uh, shooting and getting ready for deer season, uh, which is kind of you know, it's kind of like Christmas to me. Um, so that, yeah. Do you, deer, deer's the big thing. Yeah. Are you are you traveling at all for deer this year, or just going to be hunting local? I think I'm going to be pretty local. Magazines are really pulling in their horns budget wise because you know this this downturn is affecting everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Probably using an orange juice can microphone, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> keeping it pretty basic over here too. Um, sure. What uh, given given that we are in strange times right now, um, whether it be magazines pulling back budgets or people having to stay close to home, people not being able to travel for their big trips or able to go into work or whatever, a lot of people are stuck at home. Um, so I would certainly encourage people to to hunt if they can or fish if they can or forage if they can. But if they literally can't get out and do any of those things and they need to consume media, do you have any recommendations there? I know last time I asked you about this, you'd recommended The Bear by Faulkner. Um, yeah. And I, I, just, I just love picking the brains of other writers about – books they like or documentaries that they've been moved by or, or anything like that. Is there anything out there right now that you can point folks towards that might be worth a little bit of their time? Yeah, I point them towards the, the, the books of Bill Heavey, which I think will really lift <laughs> them up spiritually, engage them, teach them new things. And, uh, you know, um, I agree. I do agree. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I've read, uh, I'm doing a review of a book by Jeremy Wade, who was the guy on River Monsters and is, you know, the extreme anglers, extreme angler. But, uh, and he wrote this book trying to take you into his mindset as he goes after these fish. And in that he succeeds, you know, he, he shows you his mindset. And the only problem is his mindset is, is really, uh, to me is really dull because he's not fishing. <clears throat> he thinks, you know, the, the idea of sport is unhelpful. You know, he's, he's trying to catch these fish for his TV show, you know, no, no fin, no fee. And, uh, so it's, you know, he fishes as if his life depends on every situation. And he's always using that, the heaviest gear, um, you know, gear appropriate to catching the biggest fish that he can possibly catch in a, in a given situation and reducing all human error. And, um, you know, just, re- and it just reduces fishing to this, uh, kind of brutal science. Um, and 
you know, the guys who had huge success. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not sure how much fun he has. Yeah. <laughs> so. So we wouldn't, wouldn't read that book. Wouldn't read that one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd love to get out and catch some bluegills. What, uh, it's funny you bring that up because it is a weird line we walk though. And and I'm, I'm pivoting off of the media thing and back to what you just described because it applies to a lot of things, it applies to hunting, applies to fishing. Um, so this, the idea that he just wants to catch the fish is somehow off putting. Um, but at the same time, if you didn't want to catch the fish or if you looked at the opposite way and you said, well, I don't, I, I just want to play it. Um, but I, I would never eat it or would never, or I just want to hunt the deer, but I don't really care about the end result. Then something's gone there too, a little bit. Um, Oh yeah. You shouldn't be hunting deer if you don't care about the end result. Right. Right. Um, How do you reckon with that? Well, you know, I, I want to, I want to catch fish and, and I want to shoot deer, but my day in the woods, uh, you know, I can have a pretty good day and not not shoot a deer or catch a fish. Although it's harder with fish, I have to say. If I don't catch anything, that's a harder day. You can always you can always release a fish. That's true. Do you have any qualms with catch and release fishing at all? There's some folks that that I know that have taken stances against it in that it's kind of playing with your food. Um I I I catch and release. It does you know it does bother me a little bit. It seems to me that um, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying that it bothers me a little bit that the idea of that I'm out there and, you know, kind of inflicting trauma on this fish um, to some degree, you know, I have no idea to what degree um, for my, you know, for my own amusement. It seems sort of cleaner and more honest if you're catching fish to, to feed yourself. Although, you know, if that's all we did, you know, a lot of rivers and streams would soon be devoid of fish. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I, I've thought the same thing, but it hasn't kept me from catch and release fishing. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, uh, but it's true. It's if, if you went the opposite too far, what you just described would happen. Then we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have the resource at all yeah. if you kept everything. So there's, no. It's interesting though. It's this weird thing that I that I think that across all of these consumptive activities you have to constantly wrestle with. If you it, I guess if you get to the point where you start thinking about these things like like I did in my 20s, you start wrestling with the uh, the what am I doing and the why am I doing it and the how I'm doing it. And it is a funny thing when you when you rationalize that okay, I'm hunting to eat. I want to kill a deer to eat it. But then you self-impose different restrictions on yourself that make it harder to get the thing that you eat. So you go from, mm-hmm. oh, I don't want to use a gun now, I'm going to use a bow. Or then you start using traditional gear. And there's an argument that can be said that someone might look at that and say, oh, it's more ethical to bow hunt because it's harder. You're making it more difficult for you. So it's easier for the deer to get away. Or you can make the opposite argument, which is, no, it's less ethical to bow hunt because there's a greater chance of you wounding the deer and it's not as quick of a death. There's all these weird ethical, moral dilemmas, fine lines. Um, and I, and I, I don't know. You if- know I, I, 
I kind of think that the one of the greatest things, maybe the greatest thing about hunting, is that you know there's no audience. You're you're the one who decides those things, and every hunter decides what's right for him. You know, um, and I, I try to stay away from ethical arguments as if there is, um, you know, a right or wrong. Um, you know, the wonderful thing about hunting is the is, is the moral complexity of what you're doing. You know, the fact that it's not um, black and white and that nobody, there's nobody else telling you, you know, what to do. And there, there's so few areas of our lives where we have that freedom. And of course, with that freedom is, you know, responsibility for what you choose to do. And you know how you're going to live with it. Yeah. Which I think are, you know, is fantastic. Yeah, it's it's it seems to me it's the process of having to go through that kind of murky swamp of the interior of your mind to figure that out for yourself. Uh, there's there's uh, I don't know if it's joy or accomplishment or there's something there's something there that is satisfying. There's something healthy about it and something good about it, and and I don't know what it is either. Yeah, and I'm hesitant to try to uh, put a label on it, but I know, I know it's, I know it's important. Yeah, you might be you might be hesitant to do this. You just you just said that you like to avoid any kind of ethical or moral stance that you pointing it to someone else. But um, but but to steal a question from another podcaster that I like, if if you were given a billboard along the highway there heading into DC. Um, and, and this, I think this is a great final thought to, to end on here. If you could have a billboard for everyone to see, or if I could give you the, the homepage of Google and YouTube and you could plaster a great big banner ad across it for everyone to see every day, um, what would that message be right now for people from, from Bill Heavey? What would you like to see on that? Uh, well, that's, uh, that's a totally unfair question. I kind of resent you asking it. <laughs> and my, uh, my quick answer, <laughs> I, you know, off the top of my head, I guess I would, I would say, you know, uh, enthusiasm is more important than skill. You know, the idea that it's about enjoying what you're doing. It's not about being the best at it. Because I think there's a sort of tyranny of we feel like we're not supposed to enjoy stuff unless we're really accomplished at it, unless we're serious about it. And I think that's just completely bass awkward. <laughs> I think that's a great, that's a great sentiment to, to be thinking about, especially during times like these, when I think spend a little more time focusing on the, the joy you can have is, is more important than ever. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so Bill, for people that do want to take your original recommendation, which was to read up on all those Bill Heavey books, um, do you want to do you want to kind of read through which what those book titles are, or mention anyone in particular that fo- folks might want to take a look at right now? Where to get them? First one was uh, if I if you didn't bring jerky, what did I just eat? And there was uh, you're not lost if you can still see the truck. Followed by, um, it's only slow food until you try to eat it. 
and uh, Should the Tent Be Burning Like That. All great titles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and I gotta say I don't I don't know which I have no idea which well are you willing to tell me which book did the best or which did, book did the worst? Uh, the one that did, I I honestly don't know I don't, I don't pay a great <laughs> I know which one did the worst which is probably not what I should tell you but the uh, it's only slow food did the worst I think because they had no idea how to categorize it okay uh, because it was a bunch of different things. Yeah. And and but, so uh, I asked because I was, I was if assuming I didn't bring that. jerky. If you didn't bring jerky, what did I just eat? I think was pretty successful. So, so yeah, I was, I was thinking that maybe that the slow food one would be the answer because it is a different format than your other books. And, and like you said, maybe harder yeah. to categorize. Um, but I want to make it a personal mission of mine to try to change that. So I want everyone out there to go and check out that book because I really have been enjoying it. I've always loved your short essays, but to see a book, because for folks that aren't familiar, all of your other books are a series of, of short stories and essays um, related to fishing, hunting, the outdoors, different things like that. But it's never been a single narrative like what you did with It's Only Slow Food. That is a narrative, a single narrative arc that takes you through your own personal journey to try to become more connected to your food and hunting and fishing and foraging and all that. Um, and it's really good, Bill. It's, it's a, it's a enjoyable book. I think, uh, it deserves readers more than it has. I'm sure there's been plenty of readers, but it deserves more. Um, so I would encourage anyone out there listening. It's a great read for right now. These, these times we're in, um, I've, I've taken, uh, I've, I've laughed, I've smiled, I've, learned a thing or two along the way and it's it's inspired me to spend more time out there looking for tasty things to pick up out of the wild and eat so uh highly recommend all those but definitely check that one out right now so bill thank you thank you for writing thanks for talking with me thanks for your time my pleasure thank you all right that is going to do it hope you enjoyed this one uh like i mentioned at the end highly recommend bill's books uh now's a great time to do some reading so pick those up if you haven't already picked up That Wild Country, my recently published book. I'd recommend you check that one out too. And otherwise, I just hope you have a great rest of your week. Stay healthy, stay well. Hope you can get outside and enjoy Mother Nature and some sunshine. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.